Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. Survivors Podcast. This is our 10th episode. We are doing this episode anonymously, so we want listeners to know that we care about people's stories and their safety, and sometimes we can have stories that could impact our children or our jobs, our lives, different things like that. And so Denise is not her real name, but that's what we will be calling you today. And we're really excited to get into her story. Uh, Maybe excited is the wrong word. Um, (laughs) We're really happy that she has the vulnerability to share this story with us. It's another story that's different than our others. And we're going to cover some topics that we haven't covered so far. So this is just going to be really great. And we're really grateful to have you, Denise. I'll just let you have it from here. Yeah, um, I decided that I needed to keep my identity private just because I have adult children that this would hurt them. And I've always been about forgiveness and just people make mistakes in life and sometimes they ask for forgiveness and they deserve to be forgiven and sometimes that doesn't mean you can you have to forget that they did it. You don't really have to be around them, but the things I'm about to say, not that many people know that it happened. So I'm one of six children, but my mom and dad had three children and then waited 10 years and had three more. And I'm the middle one of the older group of kids. And neither of my parents were members. We were just Christian. And I remember going to some different churches when I was real little. But I do remember that missionaries came by our home and I was maybe six. And, you know, my mom drank alcohol. My dad smoked and drank. And it wasn't like a big deal. But um, she took the missionary lessons. And then I remember she stopped drinking. That's about all I remember of the missionary story except I was at a baptism. It was my mom's baptism and my older brother. My older brother is 18 months older than me. I was maybe seven, I'm not sure. But my mom joined the church and so did my brother, but my dad wasn't at that baptism. But I go home and then all of a sudden there's a lot of fighting in our home. My parents are just fighting and my mom and dad um, separate. And my dad was furious because 
she joined the church without his permission. This was like 1969, So back then, most of the time, women wouldn't do anything without their husband's permission. And so he got an attorney and he sued. And he was actually suing because my brother was baptized without his permission. So we went and lived with my grandparents. I do remember the ward there. We went to primary every week. We went to church every Sunday. My grandparents weren't members. There was nobody in our family that were Mormon. And I think my family was split up like that for like a year. And then they got back together. I do remember the rules. The rules were none of the kids could get baptized until we were 18. My dad said we could only go to church on Sunday, one Sunday a month. But every week we could go to all the primary activities and everything we wanted to do. My mom, she like dived into Mormonism. She, uh, she was actually in the Relief Society. She did all kinds of stuff for a primary. There were meetings every night. She kind of took advantage of that. It's fine to do things during the week and went away and she was gone a lot. And she also got involved with like ERA and political things. And, and she was just gone a lot. So there was just the three of us at this time. And I was the quiet child. I was the middle child. I was just, I, I loved my dad. I was kind of his little sidekick. I'd walk, follow him around and watch him work in the garage. And um, I would sit on his lap. Um, like my brother and my sister were kind of like hyper and they're all over the place. And I was the one that was quiet and I would sit on his lap and um, watch TV with him. I was affectionate and I was shy. So, I remember sitting on his lap and we'd have a blanket and he'd start touching me. But I was like six and a half, seven. I was like seven. And I, I didn't really think anything about it. It didn't mean anything. Just touching me over my clothes. I, that's all I remember of that. But it's like when I got a little older and I was starting to develop, and I think I maybe was nine-ish, I remember that he would touch under my clothes. And so then I was starting to think, this is weird. And I would avoid him. Like I would not sit on his lap anymore. And um, I avoided him. But I was in the garage one time and he had like this little office in the garage and he took me in there and he locked the door and he made me sit on his lap and then he started touching me under my clothes. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. So then I tried to just, I never went around it. Like this is bizarre. And by the way, I always smelled alcohol on his breath whenever those things were happening. And um, then there was another time I was just sitting on the couch in the front room and I was looking out the window. It was dark and like my mom wasn't home. And I started to get really anxious and tell her to stop going places and she needed to stay home. By then she was pregnant with my, my youngest, one of my brothers. So then I'm sitting on the front room couch and I'm just look, looking outside and daydreaming. And then he comes in and he sits by me. And I, I try to leave and he grabs my wrist and he tells me to sit down and then he takes my hand and he puts it on him and he's hard and I'm like trying to pull it away, but he's making me touch him and he unzipped his pants. This was, it was awful. And he's like, I just wanted to show you what happens to men when they get excited and you should know that this happens and he's breathing heavy. And I was like, disgusted and he I told him that I didn't like it and he said well this is our secret don't tell anybody so I didn't tell anybody because my parents had already been divorced I mean almost divorced they were separated and they were gonna get a divorce and they got back together and I thought well if I tell they're gonna definitely get a divorce and I didn't want that and I wanted my family to stay together back then divorce was more stigma stigmatized kind of than it is now. <laughs> Not many people were part of, you know, had a divorced family. 
you know, and it wasn't like every day this was happening. And so like, it seemed, I can't, I might've blocked out a bunch of other incidents. And then there was uh, at least two times in the middle of the night while I was laying in bed, he'd come in and he'd just fondle me, you know, touch me. And I, I just laid still, like just so still. And I think one of you, um, Dana talked about that or a story and how you think if you pretend you're asleep, it'll go away, it'll stop. Yeah. My sister was in like a bed right next to me. I just became still, you know, and hope it stopped and then it stopped, you know, but that was happening. I don't know how many times I blocked it out and I wanted to tell my mom, but I didn't want to tell my mom because it would destroy our family, rip us apart again. So my mom was pregnant, very pregnant, and she was having, we were having like an Easter gathering, and she was hosting this party, you know, with a lot of people, and there was a family that was very cool, we were close to, and they were Mormon, we called them cousins, we were so close to them, and she was my age, and I told her what was happening, and she's like, we've got to tell your mother, and I'm like, no, I don't want to, and she's like, I'm getting your mom, so she drags my mom into the bedroom, And my mom's like seven, eight months pregnant. And I tell her that dad's been touching in my private areas. And she immediately looked angry. And she just stormed out of the room. And she was angry. And I thought she was angry at me that this was my fault. It wasn't until my 20s when she and I talked about it again. But that's it. Like, she never said another word to me. But it stopped. Like, my dad didn't do that anymore. And um, I didn't say anything to any of my siblings. One time, my dad apologized. And when he apologized, he gave me a radio, like a transistor radio, which was like a really cool thing. And so he gave me that. He gave me a watch. I think he was trying to apologize by giving things. Well, my mom took all of those things away. And that was like further proof that I thought, well, you know, this is my fault and I'm being punished for whatever happened. But nobody talked to me. I didn't have counseling. Um, It was like, you know, that was it. And years later, when I was in my 20s and I did talk to my mom, she said that she went to a bar bishop and my dad wasn't a member still. He was still wasn't a member, but he called my dad in and my dad admitted it. Then they decided that he, he could go to counseling. They sent him to a counselor. I guess it might have been paid for by the church, my mom said, and that he was listening to these therapy tapes and that he might have been doing some kind of hypnosis. And then she was home. Like she was around then. And I think she became hyper vigilant to make sure nothing like that ever happened again to any of us. And then they had two more children. So Yeah, move on. Isn't that strange that they sought out counseling for your dad, but it's just silence for you? Like, I actually remember thinking to myself, I'm glad that nobody's talking to me about this because this is the most humiliating, embarrassing thing, and I never would want to talk about it or tell the details. Matter of fact, all my mom knew is that he touched me in my private. That's all she knew. She didn't know that later, yes, he did penetrate me with his fingers. He made me touch him. Actually, even when I was in my 20s, I never even said that. I just said that he did touch me, and it was several times. It was more than several times. Then later in my 50s, when I actually started to get some counseling for this in my 50s, I told her everything. I told her what I kind of what I just told you. My dad had already passed away, but she was totally devastated, like, I had no idea that it was to that extent. And I yeah. saw it. Yeah. I think that 
you know, this is something that parents need to be paying attention to. They need to be asking questions because a kid is not going to offer up that information. Because I did the same thing as you, where I didn't talk about the details either until just now. Like, this is a new thing in my life, too, since my uncle took his own life. I had never talked about the details either. A kid's just not going to do that. You know, let's not shy away from it and be too afraid to find out what it really is. Let's find out what it really, really is. Maybe that would have made a difference back then. Well, I think my mom thought that if she just was home all the time, nothing happened. And as far as I know, it didn't happen to any of my siblings. As far as I know, my sister, I know for sure, because she's the only one that I've actually talked to about it. I have four brothers and one sister, and she said she remembers that time. She remembers how much attention I was getting from my dad, our dad. And she was jealous. She didn't understand. She just thought he liked me more. She felt unloved. And I do have four brothers that I'm wondering if something happened to them. But I'll never know. I mean, maybe I should ask him or talk to him. But my dad's dead. And I almost want to just let the whole thing die with him. But I don't know. It seemed like he got his stuff together. I never heard. My mom said that as far as she knows, nothing had. He never did anything like that again. What makes you wonder if something happened to your brothers? Um, They're kind of dysfunctional. (laughs) One of them especially. (laughs) My older brother, he's passed away as well. He had a hard time. He got into a lot of trouble. And one of my other brothers also asked my mom. My younger middle brother asked, my my mom told me um, that he was asking questions. Like, did dad ever do anything? So I don't know. Could have been like my sister letting it slip. What could have been my husband also knew. That's a possibility. But anyhow, I hadn't been baptized. I didn't get baptized at age eight because my dad had that rule. We had to wait till we were 18. We were a part member family. I always felt inadequate about being a part member family because you just feel less than everybody else. Your dad is smoking and drinking and you're just feeling, you're getting the messages at church that he's, I don't know. I was trying to, I love my dad. I mean, I hate to say that. I mean, it's weird to say that, but I did love him because he was a good guy in so many other ways. And I was forgiving him. I mean, I thought I, you know, I needed to forgive him. And so I did. So anyway, I remember getting, I did get baptized at age 12 or 14. I can relate to what you're saying. So my mom was a member. My dad was a member, but he never went to church and he drank alcohol and he smoked. I think after my brother and my sister were born, I think he stopped smoking. Or maybe he just smoked when he was out drinking or something. My mom was very active and had callings, and she took us to church. And um, my dad was technically a member, but he did not go to church. And so I know that feeling very well, that you go to church, you have a part member family, everybody else, they all have the perfect family, right? They all have everything together. They all have a mom and a dad, and you go to primary, and you don't have the perfect family. Yeah. We had daddy-daughter dinners and stuff. Do you remember those? Uh-huh. Yep. Um, and like the golden green ball. I remember my dad took me to one daddy-daughter dinner, and then he never took me to any of those things again. And they always had to like get somebody, like our home teacher or something, to take me to those things. Right. Uh, and my dad didn't baptize me. I think it was our bishop that baptized me, and that felt awkward. Everybody else has their dad there baptizing them. And so you're just singled out all the time. 
Oh, yeah. My dad wasn't even at my baptism. He did let us get baptized. And I don't know how much that whole abuse thing played into it because he was determined to not let us be baptized till we were 18, till we could make informed consent. But I thought that that was bad. You know, like my dad, he was bad. That was wrong of him not to let me be baptized. But mm -hmm. there were some great missionaries and they came over and they started really helping our family and stuff. So he finally let my sister and I be baptized. And so the, the, the story kind of goes on from there. You know, I was uh, 14 when we moved and I had been super shy and um, I decided I didn't really want to be shy anymore. I wanted to try to become more outgoing. So I set that goal. You know, I really wanted to be active in the church. My older brother was starting to get into trouble at that point and I was embarrassed about my older brother and I was really worried about my dad and my brother's salvation. I wanted our family to be together in the eternities, and I was super all the time worried about their salvation. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, when I was like almost 16, um, and I was going to church, and actually I even walked to church by myself many times. I was the only one, you know, I walked to church and then go to seminary. We had early morning seminary, but there was a boy that was kind of like a friend of the family and he was a senior, I was a sophomore, and my mom let me go to a dance with him when I was 15, almost 16, and um, he just kissed me, and he was he was respectful, and he just kissed me, and that was all, that was it, and so that was cool, and I was fine with that, but then when I turned 16, and all my friends turned 16, they were getting asked out by Mormon boys, and I really wanted to go out, you know, I wanted to go on these dates too, but they weren't asking me out, and I never knew why. At that point, I was thinking, well, maybe it's because my family's not a member, my dad's not a member, my dad smokes, my dad drinks, you know, yada, yada, I don't know. But we had in the lunch area at the high school this thing called the Mormon Wall, and there were probably 20, 30 Mormons in my high school, and we would just hang out at that wall, you know. And there was this cute Mormon football player that was like a year older than me, great ahead of me, and he was cute, and he started talking to me a little bit. And then after school, I think we had our last class together, we would sit and talk after school, and um, he was so cute. He used to drive me from early morning seminary to the high school and he held my hand and he had like a Camaro. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> and um, I was lucky because I got to sit in the front seat of the Camaro and he held my hand and that went on for like eight weeks. But then sometimes he would ignore me like I didn't exist. And then he would be nice to me, hold my hand, then I didn't exist. And he never kissed me. And we went to a party and there was like 50 people at this party and members and non-members and he ignored me he hung out with football players and he ignored me so i was like forget him there was like a surfer kid and he like was cute and so he and i started talking and at the party we went out to his car and we made out so i would say like that was my first like make out session but all we did was kiss and make out basically pretty heavy kissing um but a light shined into the car while we were doing that and it was some football players so i kind of thought well i blew it with that cute mormon football player oh well there's this cute surfer guy here and we started dating <laughs> so the next week i was sitting at the mormon wall with my friends and we see the cute mormon football player and a couple of his buddies walking up with a present wrapped with a boat and we were all like going okay they're walking towards us i wonder who's going to get this present and then they handed it to me 
And I was like, wow, like, why would he give me a present? I just sort of dissed him at the party and he dissed me and whatever. So I opened it and I didn't know what it was. It was like leather and there was like metal stuff on it. And I did not know what it was. And it was just this weird contraption. And I said, what is this? And he's like, that's a chastity belt because you can't keep your legs closed. Oh, my God. Uh And I was a virgin. I had only kissed um, those two boys. And that was it. But I was dressing kind of cute. Like, jeans were in style. I wore tight jeans. I dressed cute. And, yeah, I think I, like, since I did that to him and embarrassed him or something, he wanted to get retaliation. Well, I slammed the box shut after he said that, that I can't keep my legs closed. I ran home, and I buried it in my backyard, and I never told anybody. But it became a little bit of a conversation with some of the Mormon kids, and that next, a couple days later, I found out that he got that chastity belt from his uncle and his uncle was our English teacher in the high school and in our ward. Yeah. I don't know if the uncle knew what he was doing with it. I don't believe so, but there was chatter. So it's possible the uncle found out. I don't know. Did but they make that, it? Where no, did it come like from? Freaking real like metal and leather, like belts that had like spikes and weird stuff. put a lock on it i don't know where they got it i don't i mean i know he got it from his uncle but i don't know why the uncle would have had that he's a member of the church and our english teacher don't Hmm. you kind of wish you had it now you could buy a nice bra to go with it (laughs) (laughs) wait you still have it interesting if I I wonder if it's still buried in that backyard if I could ever get back in there in backyard knock on the door and say hey there's something in your backyard you might want to I wonder if anybody ever found it (laughs) it's terrible that that happened to you then but wouldn't it be so great to reclaim it now and like do some boudoir photos (laughs) 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 he's like I just push down like I push that down I pretended it didn't happen. Like, that didn't happen. Pushed it down. Kind of became my uh, way of coping. I'm not a very emotional, up-and-down person as far as emotions anyway. So I just pushed it down. That didn't happen. That was gone. That was that was out of my mind. The weird thing was is I started getting asked out on dates by non-member boys, and they were constantly trying to, like, push my boundaries. And all I really wanted to do was kiss. That was all I wanted to do, that was fun, you know, kissing and making out was so fun, you know. And But one time I was walking home from school, and a football player comes walking up right next to me. And I was like, wow, what is this football player? Why is he paying attention to me? He wasn't a member. The next thing I knew, he's dragging me behind a bush. Basically, he unzipped his pants, pushed me to my knees, and was trying to get me to whatever. But I was, at that point, I was like, what the heck is this? And I, like, pushed him and ran away. Mm-hmm. so yeah I mean that was an attempted rape um, or rape I guess you could mm-hmm. but back then you didn't say anything you didn't do anything about it this was like 1978-ish you didn't do anything about that but you know so like yeah I mean, I'm not getting asked out by boys that were members I was still trying to do what was right I'm still trying to go to church I'm going to seminary I was like what's wrong with me it was this is a weird thing I had a good friend that was in my ward who was a good artist and then I had another one who was always getting A's in English I had another one that had a beautiful voice and could sing 
and we were all sitting there and everybody was talking about their talents and like, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so, she can, she, you have a really good voice and you're an artist. And then they were like, well, and you know, Denise can make out pretty good. So I was like, yeah, I, I guess I, I know how to make out pretty good. That was my talent. And I, I was cute. I had a very cute figure. And that's kind of what I identified as. But, you know, as years went on, yeah, my boundaries got uh, pushed a little further and more and more, you know, heavy making out or petting. But I was I was still feeling like less than members in the ward and uh, not really worthy of a good Mormon boy wanting to date me. But then, lo and behold, there was someone that was in our stake, and he started, like, following me around all the time. Like, I'd walk up to a drinking fountain, and then the water would turn on, and there he was. And he would, you know, we'd go to dances. He'd ask me to dance all the time. I would dance with him. Um, but he was a weirdo. Like, I, I never, I didn't really like him like that because he was always doing weird stuff at school. Him and his buddies showed up and they like dead did dead fish in the middle of the lunch area or he came to school one time in like a loincloth and he had a bag and everybody he threw some candy out of this bag and then he started swinging okay this is a pep rally we were at a pep rally and at pep rallies often they would throw candy out of a paper bag so he was he like tossed a few bits of candy they were doing it to the village people and he was wearing the loincloth he was the indian in that and he's wearing a loincloth. He had some shorts under it, I think. But he's, like, starting to swing this bag. And out from the bag flies a raw chicken. Oh, my gosh. Went. It landed on one of my friend's white ditto jeans oh, and got blood no. on So, like, he was out there. But he was smart. He went to church all the time. I thought his family was a good family. His mom, though, was one of my Sunday school teachers, and she was not a very nice person. I even knew that back then. She was always yelling at us in Sunday school, and I didn't think she was very nice. But So, yeah, he's, like, really interested in me. And then he asked me out, and we started going out. I was a junior. He was a senior. And I was like, finally, a nice Mormon boy is asking me out. And we actually got close really fast we were friends and we got pretty close and he was a little mean to my friends like I remember my friends warning me that they were losing me to him and that he was weird and he was probably you know I shouldn't date him but I loved him I mean I was starting to fall in love with him I really think I was when I was falling in love with him but like after four three or four months then suddenly he's trying to make out heavy petting and pushing my boundaries and I was like saying no and I'm like dang it even a good Mormon boy is I must be doing something wrong and I'm getting all those messages in church about chewed gum mm. yeah and I'm feeling unworthy because of all of this stuff do you want to tell the chewed gum thing for people who don't know what that is <laughs> well it's a lesson that in church they ask everybody do you want a piece of gum and yeah you want a piece of gum and it's in a wrapper and it's clean but then the teacher will chew the gum or somebody will chew the piece of gum and they're like, it's the same piece of gum. Why don't you want it? Well, it's all chewed up and it's slobbery and it's not going to be able to go back into the package all nice. I just know it was traumatizing. Well, yeah, it's they're basically saying they're comparing that to girls. They're saying mm -hmm. that that you are a chewed piece of gum that no one will want you because you're the same as a chewed up piece of gum and no one's going to want that. They want the fresh piece of gum in the nice shiny package and you don't want to be the chewed piece of gum. What a great message for young girls, right? Yeah. 
And also, we're completely responsible for the boys' behavior. Like, mm -hmm. what we wear, what we do, it's our fault. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, none of the boys are a chewed piece of gum, are they? No. That's what I wonder, <laughs> is if the boys ever heard that, if they were ever told that they, if they were ever given that lesson. I doubt they were. Yeah, I don't know. But we did start getting close, and um, we ended up having sex. But the weird thing was, is actually, like, that even brought us closer. I realized, like, you know, when you're told that it's sacred in Mormonism, that sex is sacred, and it's between a man and a wife, you know, married couple. But I met, immediately felt like a connection with him. Like, I felt bonded at that point. And closer to him than ever. We just got really close. But then, you know, he, he was actually going to go on a mission. And so we did go in and we confessed. And uh, the bishop just said, you know, you guys are never to be alone, ever. And you're not allowed to do anything. Like, that's it. You can't do anything at all. And actually, it was weird because we were pretty good. I mean, we, we did not, except for one incident with straws from the fast food restaurant. Like, straws. We, we touched each other with straws. <laughs> but... <laughs> And we, but you know, we're like, okay, we're going to, it was, it was so dumb. It was so dumb, but you know, the, it's weird that, um, right now, I don't know if you're aware, like what goes on at BYU about different weird behaviors that they justify. Um, like it seems like Mormonism, especially you just aren't allowed to do anything, uh, explore your own sexuality and mm -hmm. all these things. And so kids are getting together and they're justifying they're not having sex but they're you know doing things like soaking and yep. yeah we learn to lie in mormonism especially i think the the men because they have normal sexual urges and they are taught they're not allowed to masturbate they're not allowed to look at porn and it's a normal human functions you know and so when you're told that you can't, but you fail. You don't want to be embarrassed and not have, be able to take the sacrament, and so you lie. You, mm -hmm. li you lie to others, and you lie to yourself. Yep. And you make a, a fake reality. So um, I grew up in Panguitch, and then after I moved up to northern Utah, I still had friends and stuff in Panguitch that we had children together, and so their kids were still in the high school there. And they ended up having to send out letters to all of the parents and they had a special assembly and they had the parents come because they found out that the kids were having anal sex rather than having sex. And they figured that if they had anal sex, then it didn't really count as sex and nobody could get pregnant. It was so shocking and such a big deal. You know, all, all the parents had to come in and they had this big thing about anal sex. And I'm just thinking of these teenage girls who are getting suckered in to having anal sex. Like, come on, the girls aren't getting anything out of that. What they're doing is they're just providing their boyfriends with a way to get what they want with without technically, you know. Yeah. It yep. it was frightening. Yeah, I, I heard about that. I've heard you know um, all the justification that people make. Like some of these behaviors, 
that people do between consenting adults. It's like, you know, it's, it's okay. But when you're taking, making covenants and your, you know, your baptismal covenants, your priesthood covenants, and you're, you're being told one thing on Sunday and then you're doing something awful, but you're justifying it and changing the name of it or what it really is to something else it's it's learning to lie it's learning to hide Mm -hmm. well anyway we went in we talked to the bishop and i think we were both disfellowshipped as well it was like a long time ago and i think we didn't take the sacrament or something and so he was going to go on a mission and then his family fell to pieces his mother took off and left. That was her second marriage. So the stepdad was there, but he wasn't even coming home on the weekends. So my uh, boyfriend was taking care of his two younger sisters. And I was impressed. Like, I believe he had just graduated from high school. He was he was making dinner for them. He was making sure they got to, you know, school. He was going out grocery shopping. Uh, the ward stepped up, the ward helped, you know, it was just like this tragic thing. And I was impressed with him that he could do that. And so then the bishop talked to us and he, my, he didn't want to go on a mission anymore. He was afraid if he left, I wouldn't be there when he got back. And we were both temple worthy by then because we had waited a year. And so we got married in the temple. But, you know, the sad thing was, is my dad wasn't a member and my mother had never been through the temple. And um, my dad was just furious about that. But we wrote down a list of all the reasons why we felt a temple marriage was important. And we presented it to my dad and it was going to be our future and our lives. We wanted to be together forever. And so we went ahead and got married in the temple. And, you know, I have pictures of my dad dad sitting on the temple sidewalk while we're inside getting married and it was heartbreaking but I was so in love I just went I've got to do it this way we decided we wanted to have a legacy we went all in really became very active and I was super happy in my marriage later when I finally decided to go to counseling when I was in my you know early 50s was I had PTSD a lot of what I'm about to say is what caused that what happened when I was a child, I seemed to be fine. Like, I didn't have any qualms about having sex. I had no problem. I've heard a lot of sex abuse survivors deal with problems in you know, intimacy. I didn't have that. I didn't think I had any long-term effects, that makes sense. Because there, there's, like, stereotypes out there about that. With it, like, they'll either be really promiscuous or the opposite. <laughs> So we were getting along, everything was awesome, but he had weird, obsessive, compulsive things. His personality is very much like that. Like he liked me in high school for like a year and a half, followed me around, kept asking me out and I kept saying no and he kept, he was persistent. He was so good with taking care of his sisters because he was very persistent, he was very responsible. So. When he said, well, we need to save money, so we're not going to turn our hot water heater on in our apartment so that we don't have to have a high electric bill. We're going to either take cold showers or we can go to the apartment jacuzzi and we can bathe there. And, you know, I hated that, but I went along with it. So weird. There was other weird things like that. It was um, just a stress to go grocery shopping because we were cutting corners all the time. 
saving wrapping paper. My family was like, yeah, we remember when you used to like save the wrapping paper and fold it up all neatly, you know, so you could have wrapping paper for future. I'm homemade gifts that I always make cookies or something for family. So, but the other weird thing was while we were having sex, he started to say things like, what would you do if my buddy came in and watched? Or, uh, hey, my buddy's in the closet. He's listening to us. He wants to come out and watch us. Or even like when we were ready to have orgasm, he would shout like, hey, so-and-so, come on in and watch. You know, and he was always talking about people watching us during sex. And I just like thought he was joking around and, but it went on and he's kind of like a broken record like that. Even driving in a car, pull up to the stop. Like he says the same phrase all the time. He was always ranting and raving about other drivers. Well, they're not supposed to pull all the way up to the stop. This is later when he became a police officer. He's got a broken record. He tells the same stories. He tells the same jokes. He does the same thing. He's very predictable stuck in a little like loop and so he was always saying that but i ignored him but anyway so during sex he's saying like hey buddies come and watch you know and i just ignored him and then there were times when like one of his friends were over and we were getting ready to go to the pool or whatnot or just came back from the pool and he would say hey i've seen so-and-so naked in the locker room in high school and i've seen you my wife naked so like since i've seen you both naked why don't we just all change right here and be naked together and I'm like, no. And his friend would be like, no. He just thought that was super funny. And I always thought of it as a joke. So then what kind of was difficult for me is I found Playboy magazines. And we're taught in Mormonism that you don't you do not do that. Guys mm-hmm. don't do that. Priesthood holders don't look at more, you know, those type of media. And I talked to him about it. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'll throw that away. And then I caught him um, masturbating to one of them. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, as women, we take that in Mormonism personal. Like, there's something wrong with me. And um, he's not attracted to me or something like that. We don't understand as far as at that age in my early 20s. And I married him when I was 19, so I didn't understand. But I went to a bishop. I went to the bishop, and I talked to the bishop about it. And he says, well, I'll call him in, and I'll talk to him about it. He, yeah, he shouldn't be doing that. So um, then after he did that, I, I asked him, so what did the bishop say? And, you know, and I was expecting some kind of, like, I don't know, like he couldn't take the sacrament or whatever. But, yeah, he just said, oh, yeah, he just told me to stop doing it, and I'll just stop. So I... Uh, believed him and went on with life and um he was in a band i went all of his gigs i saw the way girls flirted with him and he flirted with them and they basically you know the old cliche girls will throw themselves at the band members and and so i was always at every single one of those and then i found a phone bill of like seven hundred dollars with sex phone calls now, I don't know, do they even have that anymore? I don't know. But back then, before the internet, there were sex hotlines. And so I said, like, what is this? And he goes, I don't know. I didn't make those. Those are not my calls. I'll call the phone company and make them take those charges off. They're not mine. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, whatever, believed him. Then I found some VHS tapes in our trash can, and the trash can was up by the side of the garage, not down on the street. So I took one in the house and I popped it in and it was 
orgies and two guys and one girl and stuff like that. So then I was like, where did you get these tapes? And like, what are these? And he's like, those aren't mine. And I'm like, well, they were in our trash can right up here by our house. Well, somebody must have just dumped them in our trash can. And we lived in a nice neighborhood. Hmm. There was nobody walking up and down our street dumping stuff in our trash can, especially not porn tapes. Um, he denied it. I believed it. Okay, so then we moved out of state, and um, he had a goal. He really wanted, he always wanted to be a police officer. He had been applying all over, up and down that state, couldn't get hired. So then finally it was like, okay, well, you know, let's move out of state. And um, he got a job. And so I basically uprooted myself from my whole life and family and moved here for him and his career. And I like living here. And he was a police officer. I'm trying to remember what happened first. I don't remember it all, but there was multiple times of him cheating and emails between other women. Um, I haven't really talked about the fact that he was getting more and more emotionally abusive. So I kind of want to back up and discuss that. It, it was like the more the you know he was becoming a police officer and starting to really get more demeaning towards me, yelling at us all the time. He uh, would turn the air conditioner off. We weren't allowed to use the air conditioner. I mean, we could, but it was hot. And I live in a desert. Like, it's hot here. <laughs> I was Relief Society president, and I was having a presidency meeting, and it got really hot, and I saw that there was sweat rolling down the sisters' faces, so I would walk into the area and turn the air conditioner colder again then I would hear it click off and at the whole presidency meeting I'm getting up and excusing myself trying not to make a scene of it and trying to turn the air conditioner back on I couldn't even concentrate on my presidency meeting he took away my ability to spend any of our household funds he took away the debit card he took away the checkbook I had to go shopping only with him or I had to get a job and I got a part-time job and I could spend my own money if I wanted to buy, like, let's say one of the kids were saying, hey, there's a birthday party. You know, if, you know how kids do that. You know, it's, it's Tuesday and the birthday party's Thursday. And I would say, well, I'd ask him if I could go buy, you know, have the debit card and go buy a present. Oh, no, no, you can't. You'll have to wait until Friday. Well, the birthday party's Thursday you know, mm -hmm. or sports, and there's a deadline to get them involved in sports. So, you know, stuff like that. Um, we weren't allowed to touch the car windows. Like, the kids couldn't get any fingerprints on the car windows. And, like, when I opened the car door, I had to be very careful just to hold the handle because if I got fingerprints up and down the door thing, then he would go berserk and lecture us. And he even used his um, dusting thing to dust the fingerprints to find out which kid was touching the windows. Wow. Um, <laughs> you wow. know, and I just gave all these allowances to him because he was doing, he was taking good care of us. He was basically a pretty good father for the kids. He was, you know, our, our kids were doing good things. And by the way, when I was Relief Society president, I did not have any meetings at night except for homecoming where the kids had a daycare. I did not have any presidency meetings at night. And I always said, we need to have it at a park where we can bring our kids. I didn't want to have anybody leave their kids at home at night.
So here's a story that happened that made me suddenly realize there's something wrong. We um, had a thing go wrong with our house where the pipe broke and we had to dig it all up. And we always had to do all the work ourselves because we were penny pinching. Then we, he was yelling at me the whole time. If, if I was standing there watching him, he'd yell at me. If I tried to help, he'd yell at me. He'd yell, go get this part, go do that. Why are you just standing there, you know, just yelling at me all the time? So then finally I just realized at that moment that if we can't get along here on earth, we're not going to be able to be together for eternity. And that's when you get married in the temple, that's what you're saying. You're going to be with this person for eternity, and you're going to be able to create worlds together. You're going to have your own worlds and your own posterity. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. we can't do this here on earth. We, I certainly don't want to be with him forever. And I remember thinking that. He was constantly getting the kids like riled up and mad at me. Um, one time I wanted to go to Borrow's Pizza for dinner and I had the money to pay for it. He said, Borrow's, the Borrow's Pizza is no longer there. It's not there anymore. And he wouldn't drive me to go see. And the kids were in the car and they were screaming. Pretty soon they were all like, let's go, let's, let's go here. Let's go. And everybody's screaming at each other. Um, one time he kicked me in the butt because he was tickling or teasing his nephew. And his sister was saying, stop. I don't want you to tease him like that. And so he, I said, you need to stop. And he kicked me in the butt. He called me a fucking bitch at church um, where another sister heard. Wow. He, yeah, that was embarrassing. But he called me that all the time at home, though. You know, I just got used to it. If we lost the TV remote, every couch's chairs turned over. He's yelling at everybody to go get it. Um, if you left the light on, a ceiling fan, he was yelling at you. Pretty soon, family meeting ended up being like a lecture all the time, calling the kids lazy. They didn't do their chores. You know, and the funny thing is our kids were like straight-A students, and they were involved in sports and music, and they went to all the young men, young women meetings. They were just wonderful kids, and he was always telling them that they were, you know, lazy. And You know, this sounds kind of like my stepdad, <laughs> quite honestly. Yeah, I listened to your story, and I thought you are Yours, I don't know. I, I thought yours was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. It kind of sounds like my stepdad, but the thing was is that he didn't have a job, but he would berate everybody in our family telling us that we weren't doing our part. We had to turn off the lights and save energy and do all these things. He would tell us everything we were doing wrong, always you know, following behind us to make sure that our lights were off and telling us the things we were doing wrong. And if you didn't turn off the lights, do you want to pay the energy bill and all these oh, things, yeah. you know, it's just like, well, we all live here and you're not even paying the bills, you know, like my mom was paying the bills. Yeah, um, but he was and we always had food and we didn't get to do anything um, extravagant for vacations. We just would go camping or my sister one time wanted to go to Disneyland and I was I asked him and he said, well, we don't have the money to do that. And so she's like, well, we'll pay for you. And then when we were there at Disneyland, we had four kids and he like got one hot dog and split it between the four of them. It was so embarrassing. I was embarrassed. I think when he finally retired from a police officer, he had $30,000 in sick time. Like he never called in sick. So we would go on these trips to visit family to go camping because we always had to camp. We couldn't stay anywhere nice. And um, I would pack the vehicle and he would have to tear it all out. And he would get home like at 8 a.m. because he worked nights and he would tear everything out and he would tell me how horrible a job I did and blah, blah, blah. And then he'd have to repack it. 
So then I would just take things out there, set it up so he could pack it. And um, if I said, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't put that there. Oh, right, 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 yell at me. So one time I go out into the garage and he had packed the van. On top of the van were his surf racks with his surfboard on the van. And I look up and I thought, because, you know, I was damned if I do and damned if I don't. So, like, if I said something, I'd get yelled at. If I didn't say something, I yelled at. So I look up and I see that her surfboards are on top of the van already. And the van is not going to be able to pull out of the garage. But I <laughs> looked at that and I thought, hmm. And I turned around and I walked into the house. <laughs> and I let him pay the freaking consequences for not allowing me to be, you know, to, to say anything. I mean, that's just one example. My mom actually, at one point, saw bruises on my arm. Because he grabbed my arm once and left bruises. She also, she told me, you know, you should start writing down what he's doing. Just get a little notebook, write it down, and write down, and don't look at it every day. I don't think you should dwell on it. But just write it down and put it aside and hide it. Because it seems like you're forgetting some of the stuff he's doing. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I... I think I am, you know, but I did. I started writing it down. So there's his kind of his abusive personality at home. He was nicer to the children. Like he didn't do that to the kids. It was towards me mostly. And there was no black eyes or things like that. But, you know, just the grabbing of the arm, throwing me on the ground. I know that's all abuse, but I always was one of those people I could barrel through. I needed to endure to the end. That's what we're told as Mormons. We, you've got a legacy. You've got four kids. You don't want to have a part member family. Your kids are getting ready to go on their missions. You're, mm -hmm. you're just going to put up with it, you know. So I think I was Relief Society president when I caught him on the phone. This is before we had cell phones. He still had a pager, and he'd get a page, and just had the number two. And then he'd go running. And his runs used to be maybe 45 minutes, an hour at the most, but sometimes they were like three or four hours. And you've got four kids, and you're really excited, president, and you're not paying attention. Then finally you're like, whoa, he's been gone four hours. Okay, wow. So I started noticing a pattern. When he went out to run, I kind of knew his route, and I kind of like, hung back and I followed him and then he was on a pay phone and I went I parked around the corner I walked up I grabbed the phone and there was a woman's voice and I'm like what it, what is this and he said oh we're just friends we're just talking she works with me and we're just talking so I was like well okay let me talk to her and so I told her to leave him alone you know can you leave us alone we have a baby we have four kids she's like I know I'm moving to another state I won't be a problem anymore. I don't want to ruin your family. So like that was done. And then there was an email one time from another woman and in it, and I kept the email. I still have it somewhere. He was telling her that he really admired her, that he really cared about her, that what they had experienced the other night really like cemented them together. He felt close to her. So I was like, okay, march into the bishop's office with this email from another woman. And I'm like, this is what's happening. This is before I was really president, I think. I don't know. The bishop said, okay, well, I'll call him in and talk to him about it. Then they, the bishop called me back in. 
And I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, all it was is they were at work and they were, they, something dangerous happened as police officers. She's an officer. And the two of them experienced this together and it was traumatic. And when you go through traumatic experiences with people, it really cements you together. And that he really admired the way she handled the situation and it made him feel really close to her. And that's what he said. And I was like, well, that's probably a lie. And he's like, well, I trust him. They loved him. He was very charismatic. He comes off as super quiet and soft-spoken. They thought he was, they, they, the guys in the ward loved to hear his police stories. Seminary kids, the scouts, they all loved him. Mm-hmm. And he was always there. He was always helping somebody move. He was always there cleaning the church. He, yeah. That's kind they, of how it is, huh? They're, mm-hmm. they're always the nice guy. They're always the funny guy. They're always the one everybody loves. Mm-hmm. So I forgave them again. Then uh, a few years go by and I am looking on his cell phone and I see pictures of the woman that he had been talking to on the phone that supposedly moved out of state. And I could tell what they had done because I forgot to mention. So he got weird with with sex again like he started it started to get weirder he started to talk more and more about wanting people to watch us or we would go out on a friday night you know you have date night and we'd go to dinner and then after dinner we'd drive around and he'd say take your top off and i'm like i don't want to come on just take your top off. flash that car next to us come on you can do that flash that and i'm like no i don't want to and he'd be like well i'm not taking you home until you do that and I'd be like, come on, and I'm tired, four kids, and I just wanted to go home. And so I would, he goes, well, you don't have to flash anybody. Nobody will be able to see you. We got tinted windows, and so just take your top off. So I would do that because it's just he and I in the car. And, and so I did that, and, and then there were other times, like, we had a van. He always had a van, and it wasn't just, like, a mini van. <laughs> it was a van van. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm, I'm leaving things out. There were other times where I caught him flirting with someone or doing something. Uh, we got crabs. I got crabs from him the first year of our marriage. Now, he went into the doctor. He told me that the doctor said he got it from a toilet seat. <laughs> yeah. But well. we didn't have the internet. I had no way of looking that up. Yeah. Or yeah. No, that's very rare. That's a never... I didn't put two and two together till years and years later, and I was like, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> so then we would go in the van. You got four kids. You have no alone time. And if you wait until all the kids are asleep, you are too dead tired to connect in an intimate way. So we had a van, so we would go out and drive around, and we would park, and we'd make out and have sex. And so I'm okay with that. Like, that's fine. We have a van. There's no windows. But then he started wanting to... Like right before, have me open the van door, stand out there naked, him stand behind me. I mean, this is like really embarrassing to talk about this stuff, but um, you know, and, and we were consenting, and I d- actually told him no, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want, he's like, please, please, I'll just take, like, re- it'll be really quick. So I would do that. And then that kind of like escalated to, I want to watch you like run around naked. And we would be in this like remote area. And so I don't think there were cameras then in parking lots. But we would go like into these very like business areas and he would beg me and I'd be like, no, I don't want to. I just, I don't feel like it. Let's just stay in the van. And he's like, no, no. And he, he's so persistent. Like he doesn't take 
no for an answer. So then uh, he'd wear me down and he'd be like, well, yeah, just, you know, so then I would do it. Of course, there was always the theme. So-and-so's watching us. Wouldn't you like having another guy here with us? No, I don't. I don't want to do that. And I'd be like, why do you know, you always talk about wanting a guy with us. And I'm like, you would think you'd want, you'd be talking about like a girl, like a threesome. And he's like, well, no, I just think having a guy would be like, and actually he goes, I wouldn't even be part of it. I want to just stand back and watch you with another man. And he goes, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. I want to watch you with someone else. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. So back to the fact that I caught photos on his phone of a woman in the back of our van. She did have her shirt on, but she had her hands up like she was buttoning her top. It was the same woman he had been on the phone with like nine years earlier. And I found the photos and I, I said, what are these? And you know what? I think he really wanted to hurt me at that point. I, I don't know what he was doing, but he said, well, she's my soulmate. We had sex once and I'm in love with her. And I was like, well, then you need to go and be with her. Just go. And he's like, but she's not a member. And I'm like, you know, go and be with her. You know, you're just me. And he's like, no, but I love you. And I love the kids. So like he was trying to wound me. And then he was pulling back and not. Wow. Manipulation. Yeah. But I felt like dead at that point. I was dead emotionally. I actually broke a bunch of things that I loved. Like I had these seashell lamps that I loved and I broke those. I, um, it was weird. I like, I just went overboard like, and I felt dead. I, at that point decided he's not going to leave, but we're basically divorced. We've been married 25 years. The kids were all getting older, going on missions or things like that. And I didn't want to like stop the whole trajectory (laughs) of their lives. And so I just like became a shell and he, um, one time we were being intimate and he opened up a website and he had made an account and it was like a hookup website. And he made this account and he um, said that, you know, maybe we can find someone to join us. And I'm like, I don't want anybody to join us. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, 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 it'll be cool. It'll be cool. You know? And I'm like, no, I don't want it. And so then, you know, maybe two weeks, a month or something would go by and he wouldn't talk about it. And then we'd be having sex and he opened up his computer and he had the webcam on and webcamming me while he was touching. And then he was constantly begging me to do that, and I didn't want to, I told him no. I said, this is just wrong, you know, we're members of the church, I don't like doing this, I don't wanna do this, we need to leave the church, we need to, you know, this is, I just don't wanna do this. But he's so persistent, I mean, I don't know if anybody can understand what that's about, but we were the perfect family, Our kids were amazing. People in the ward looked up to us. By then, he was elders born president. Hmm. (laughs) He's doing all these things while he's in positions of authority, while he's elders born president. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to destroy the ward. Like, the ward would have been rocked if this came out. I became somebody that I'm not. Like, and I started disliking church. I 
tried, I rarely went to church. Because I didn't want to stay after church because he always stayed after and had to help with the chairs and talk to people. And I just wanted to go to separate meeting and come home. And I was sitting in the pew and he came and sat by me and he leaned forward. I was picking something up off the ground and he leaned forward and he goes, you're such a fucking bitch. And the lady in front of me, um, sister in the ward, heard and she stiffened. But for the most part, we were pretty good about hiding our dysfunction. I started to sit in church and wonder how many abusive men were in there, how many wives were in pain. I could start to see the pain on in their eyes. I could start to see the unrighteous dominion and the abuse that I was like aware, like suddenly becoming more and more aware of this sick culture of power mm-hmm. over yeah. women. Yeah. You have said a bunch of times in our conversations when we were bringing up doing the podcast with you that you wanted to make the distinction that if there are people who have this kind of sex life where where they're two consenting adults and this is the way they have sex or whatever and and they're both into it then that's just fine but that was not what this was for you this was not consensual for you this was not something that you were wanting to participate in this was something you were pressured and manipulated and cajoled and pushed until you would relent so you're not trying to say that if people have interesting sex lives and that's what they do then whatever but that's not what this was for you no but when you're married to somebody for 30 years you get worn down like the manipulation and everything it wears you down you know i ultimately did it so that's why it's so hard in a marriage to even prove marital rape or marital sex abuse. It's super hard. And then when you're in these these religious situations where you don't want to embarrass yourself and you don't want it to come out that your family really isn't the perfect family, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, it it just escalated though. Like he just constantly wanted that all the time wanted to watch me webcam and he would wait till I was like really turned on and then he would like turn on the webcam which is unfair too right you know yeah really unfair I mean he knew I didn't like it or enjoy it so now he's in the bishopric he's like the first counselor in the bishopric and like I was saying earlier for our anniversaries usually we just went out to dinner a couple times we would go spend one night in a nice hotel alone But then he wanted to go to Vegas. So we would go to Vegas for two nights. So we went to Vegas, and I think we had been married 32 or 33 years. Um, We only had, like, one kid left at home who was still needing to go on a mission. And we went to Vegas, and he had still that sex hookup thing going And he wanted to meet up with another person there, like a man. And he wanted to watch me have sex with him. And I was like, no, absolutely not. And then there was a topless pool. There's a topless pool in Vegas. There's probably more than one, but there was a certain one. And he drove me past it. And he's like, we should go to that. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to take my top off. Okay, you don't have to take your top off. You don't have to. And the weird thing was, is he was a penny pincher, but it was freaking expensive to go into that topless pool. It was like $75 a person for us to go in there. It was a lot of money for us. And he was such a penny pincher that I was like, okay, weird. Well, let's go in there. And I did not take off my bikini top. 
I did not. But there's all these other women there taking their penis. Everybody's drunk. Like, you know, it actually looked pretty fun. Like, if I was drinking and drinking at that time, I'm like, that might have been fun. (laughs) You know? Actually, I would not do that. I would still not take my top off. But I have no problem with other people. If that's what they're doing and they're having fun and they're consenting adults and they're okay with it, that looked like fun. And I was telling them, and I didn't drink. I didn't. I was. I obeyed the word of wisdom. And I was like, you would have to get me drunk to do something like that. And he's like, well, you can't drink, so no. <laughs> Why are we here? Weird. Oh, and then we, you know, we left. Um, I did have a tea cupboard at that point. Like, in my house, I had a cupboard and I had tea in it. Like, just herbal tea. And I always felt, like, really bad about that. And the kids are like, Mom and her herbal tea cupboard. Her tea cupboard, you know. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. uh, This is all, like, trying to, so embarrassing. But I'm trying to just hold it together. Hold it together till the last one goes on his mission. And then maybe we'll talk about leaving each other. You know, it's weird because I still loved him. I did love him. I loved all the good things about him. There were a lot. He was a great police officer. So, yeah, then, you know, like the next year, where do we go? He surprises me with a trip to Vegas again. And, yes, oh, in the middle of that year, guess what he did? He paid for a boob job for me. He dished out, like, $6,000, $6,000 for me to get a boob job. I was happy with my boobs, but he was always telling me they were too little, too little. And he was like, well, maybe we'll get you a boob job, and then you'll take your top off at the pool so he was never willing to take me on any like nice vacation like a real vacation to like Hawaii or like a resort or something you know he would never want to pay the money out for that and the kids never got to go to EFY he didn't want to pay for stuff like that (laughs) so yeah I was it was sort of an experiment like well if he's willing to pay that I just kind of wanted to condemn him in my mind like he's willing to pay for a boot job (laughs) so I got one and um, then the next year we went back, he made, he took me to that pool again and begged me 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 and begged me, please come on, please come on, take your top off, and I did. And by then, if you've ever been in an abusive situation, you become like ill. Like I knew this was sick, but I was becoming more and more dead, like emotionally dead. And, like, things didn't bother me. And so, yeah, I took my top off. On our 20th anniversary, we went to Jamaica. And I had just bought boobs for myself. And we, my husband and I have not been Mormon for the majority of our, our marriage. We left when I was 20. So, anyway, for our 20th anniversary, we're in Jamaica. I had just bought boobs. And there was a nudie beach and <laughs> I have always wanted to check out a nudie beach. So we went, and it was really cool because it was set up like in a circle. There were bushes and everything, and so everything was set up in a circle. So if you look to the left or, or the right, it's not like you're looking directly at somebody because it's circular. So my poor husband refused to get naked. <laughs> But I totally did the topless thing. And I laid out topless, and it was so amazing. It was so much fun. But since your boobs never, ever see the light of day, they turned the most brilliant shade of bright red. (laughs) 
but I, I bring it up because when you're not abused, first of all, and when you're not stuck in some kind of high demand religion where there's all this shame placed on you, and when you're in a consensual relationship, those kinds of things can be fun. But I'm imagining also being on that nudie beach if my husband was pressuring me or coercing me or manipulating me or trying to get me to be with some other man or something like that, how horrible that would have felt. Because it's very, very vulnerable. Even if you're consenting and you're doing it for fun, it's extremely vulnerable to be doing it at all. And so I just can't imagine how that must have felt for you. Yeah, Yeah, it was really, I think I had very low self-esteem, like, by then. But, yeah, so that, that, you know, I went to that. You know, by then I was like, you're right. It was, it's kind of freeing, you know, to sit there. But I, I, I think, like, if I had alcohol, I would have enjoyed it even more. Um, but then, you know, we went to this place in Vegas, and it's called a rooster club. Well, you walk in, and there's people doing all kinds of stuff everywhere like all over the place uh, I didn't like that I don't enjoy that that's not me but you're watching people do things all over the place you know um, they turned some music on I had on a really cute outfit and yeah I dance I can dance pretty good you know and I'm dancing and I was like enjoying kind of like the attention a lot of people watching me dance and I had clothes on okay I didn't take my clothes off um, so you know you sit at a table and like guys will walk up and start talking to you and my husband and him arranged for us to go into a room and so like we went into the room oh my gosh we went into the room I sat on the bed and then this guy like sat next to me and then like my husband was like standing against the wall and he said he wasn't going to participate because he was in the bishopric and he couldn't like do that it was worse for him to do stuff because he was a priesthood holder you know you know than me yeah, yeah. he's going to sacrifice you. Yeah, hmm. exactly. So, like, I'm on the bed, and this guy takes off his pants. And he had a heart on, but... And <laughs> that is when my husband's like, we got to go. Then, you know, we left, and he's like, did you see the guy? And, like, did you see that? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, that's just weird. I don't want to see that. <laughs> oh, gosh. I just remembered this right now. That that did happen, and I was like, Ugh. so anyway. After that, I was like, this is done. Like this is sick. I had already been asking him. He needs to be released. He needs to be released. I couldn't go to church hardly at all. I would go to sacrament meeting and I would like read or put in ear things and not listen. I couldn't stand listening. He, we never missed general conference we you would have to sit and listen to it um we went to our adult priesthood meeting one time we were sitting at an adult priesthood meeting and all the talk was about family history and i i said to him you know there are people hurting there are people on this earth that are just hurting there's you know abuse and there's drugs and there's you know illness and people need healing people need ways to understand what's going on and they need help and I was doing my yoga teacher training at the time, and I was trying, I was starting to realize that there's got to be more to than just Mormonism. And he said, don't talk ill of the Lord's anointed, that family history is important. I'm like, this is a waste of time. Like, we are literally wasting everybody's time. Where's the real true healing here? <laughs> I was getting more out of 
yoga and everything than going to church. Yeah. So I realized there was some a sickness and I needed to heal myself. So I started thinking, well, maybe some of this stems back to my childhood um, sex abuse. I'd already been doing a lot of that, like calling those hotline numbers and talking about it and talking to people mm-hmm. and just crying. And I got a hold of an organization that deals with childhood sex abuse and I had to go to an appointment and then I qualified for like a year of counseling. They did a lot of diagnostic testing. They wanted to see if I was disassociating and I wasn't, but I did have PTSD and there was a cycle of abuse in my marriage and they were trying to help me understand this whole cycle of power and abuse and did the EMDR eye movement, hoping you to go back and understand I didn't dig up any new memories, but what I did realize through that was my responses. I always felt like helpless. Like I thought as a child, I let that happen to me. And as an adult, I let that happen to me, that I was weak, that it was my fault. And I had been weak. But through this training, EMDR, and I went once a week talking and going through this process, I realized that I did have power. I personally had power, that I was trying to exert my power, and that I was strong, that I could leave, that I tried to leave other times. I tried to say no, but they didn't listen. And that this time, I needed to be strong and get myself out of it. So, yeah. Yeah. I've gone through EMDR also, and I'm still going through it. It's been almost two years, I think, and I'm still not done. So I wish I could go back. I might try to find another way to get more help. But I am in a really happy, I don't want to skip ahead. But I talked to him and I said, we need to go to counseling. Like, we need to go to a counselor. At the counseling office, we were talking to the counselor and I was telling him the things he was making me do. And he looked at my husband and he said, you have prostituted your wife. You are treating her like a prostitute. And we weren't getting any money for what we were doing, but you have prostituted your wife. Mm -hmm. And, but my, um, he knew my husband was a police officer and my husband had a gun on his ankle and he knew it. He would sit there so you could see his gun on his ankle. And so that was as much as this counselor would ever say. My husband denied everything I was saying, denied that he did that. He told us that we could have a beautiful future together if we just worked together and went to counseling together. I had been going on this journey of a year of really in-depth trying to figure out me and why I let these things happen and what I was doing to contribute it and dig deep into myself. And he wouldn't, there has to be self-realization. Like you have to be able to admit what you were doing. There was something wrong. Mm -hmm. Every time we had a fight, it always circled back around. I was doing it wrong. Sometimes our fights would last for hours. Sometimes he would wake me up and yell at me. Or if I brought up a subject, you know, like, this is what you did, and I think this needs to change. It was always twisted back at me. What I was doing. He could not accept or say sorry. He never said sorry to me. I never heard the word sorry the entire marriage. He was always the victim. So I knew it was sick, and I stood up, and I said, I'm done. 
And by the way, I think he had already asked me for a divorce a couple different times. And mm. we were actually sleeping in separate bedrooms. I wanted him to leave the bedroom. Like, you need to get out of the bed. And you know what? Sometimes after, like, that year in Vegas and pretty soon every time we did have sex, I was crying. Like, I was secretly, tears were rolling down my face during sex. And sex became painful. Like, it had never been painful to me. But it was literally caused pain. And I asked him to leave the master bedroom. He refused. So one of our kids was out of the house. So I went into that bedroom and he would barge in. He would try to get in the room. I always made sure like I went upstairs and locked the door and put stuff in front of it. And we had been talking about let's just live together as as friends, you know, because we were still friends in many ways until, you know, our son leaves on his mission. But he would barge in and force himself on me. And then, you know, I'd yell at him, don't touch me, leave me alone. And then, like, you know, I'd be walking through the kitchen, and he would pick me up and hug me and, like, oh, you're so cute, I love you so much. And I'd be kicking him. I'm like, you're not supposed to touch me. Don't touch me. And then he would do that on purpose. And we had two kids at home. And he would do that on purpose so that I was screaming and looking like the bad, the bad one. Hmm. My kids knew a lot what was happening, but not the details, like the, these intimate details. They thought their dad was a great dad. They thought he was weird. They thought he was a little bit overbearing, that he was bossy and he had problems like that. But they never, they didn't know anything was happening like that in the bedroom, ever, you know. Do they know now? My daughter. My daughter has been married and divorced, and she understands abuse. <laughs> but my daughter was living with me after our divorce, and... We talked a lot. Was he forcing sex on you during that time when you were in a separate bedroom? Uh, no, I refused. He tried. He came into the room and he tried. I was yelling at him, you know. Our whole marriage, yeah. I was always available. Like, I always made it a point to make sure he was satisfied as far as when he wanted it, I was available. Because I kind of blamed what happened on my childhood, that my mom was pregnant, she was gone, and that's why my dad did yeah, I don't know. I probably should go back to a little bit of counseling to figure out some of this stuff. Because I don't, I just don't understand that. Like, I'm still trying to figure out what happened, you know. And I always kept saying, well, he's such a good guy. He's such a good dad. He takes care of us. And, you know, I was always going back to the positive stuff he, he did. But, yeah, when we were in that separate bedroom, he tried to force himself on me. And, and I didn't let him. I got an attorney. I started saving money, setting aside. You know, when you leave... It's really hard to walk away. And he was in the bishopric. And I kept saying, you need to get out of the bishopric. It's going to devastate the ward because mm -hmm. we need to get a divorce. When our son leaves on his mission, we need to get a divorce. We are getting a divorce. And by then, I was the one, like, we're done. Like, we're done. But I started setting money aside. So it's really important. Put money aside. Start making money and set it aside. None of that money came out of our um, joint checking. Because, like, if you remember... I did not have access to our money. It had been maybe 15 years since I had actually been able to get into our checking account and take any money out. So I was using my money that I was making from work and putting it aside. Going to counseling, getting an attorney, interviewing attorneys. It's a good idea to interview a whole bunch of attorneys. Then they can't use those attorneys. Did you know that? I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He got back into a multi-level marketing thing. And the bizarre thing is the woman that was on the phone with him and the woman that I caught him pictures of, she was in his downline. I didn't know. I, I found out by accident. And he was gone all the time by then. He was like 
gone every weekend. And I was just like, yes, I'm so glad he's not here. Like, I'm really glad. Because we're just supposed to live together as friends at this point. Like, he's gone. So good. So glad. Then I, I said, you know, you and her, what are you doing? And he's like, well, we're just in this business together. There's nothing. But like in the middle of the night where he's supposed to be at work, his cell phone is pinging off a tower like 100 miles away where she lives. So he would like say he was going to work, but he'd go to her house in the middle of the night. You know, whatever. I didn't even care at that point. I did not care. Matter of fact, I went to one of the multi-level marketing some people enjoy multi-level marketing, but I never did. And I ne- didn't even get into the Amway thing like early in our marriage and how it just almost destroyed us. I mean, I was trying to be supportive back then, but that, yeah, that's a whole nother story. Yeah. So I um, went to this multi-level marketing thing and I saw her there and I said, he's yours. You can have him. I don't want him anymore. He's yours. I hugged this woman, hmm. you know, and guess what the... <laughs> I think, like, she left. She was gone. Now that, like, she moved away or she married somebody else, I don't really know. But, like, as soon as he was available, she was gone. And then I forgot to mention this, too. Like, I started really digging into her photos online. And, oh, I forgot to tell this. Um, Going through and getting some things and putting them aside, that's the other thing you should do if you're trying to leave a marriage. Go get a storage unit and start. It depends on your, if you're able to do this. But I would start taking mementos, my family photos, my things, and put them in a storage unit. Things that I wanted because I know him. I knew him well enough that I would not see some of these things ever again. As a matter of fact, I climbed up into the attic and I found about um, $16,000 in silver and cash. I documented it with a video that I was taking just half. I counted it all out on video and I took it. Like we were poor. Like our whole marriage we were poor, but he's stashing money in the attic <laughs> so I found pictures of this woman and love letters from her that were about uh, 12 15 years earlier in it there was they were talking about you know making love and all that and there was a picture of her you know in bikinis and naked and then there was one picture of her with a pregnant belly getting an ultrasound um, oh my gosh! Woman, send somebody a picture of them getting an ultrasound, unless they're the father of your child, of their child, right? I mm-hmm. mean, so I asked him, "Is this? Did you have a baby with her?" No, no, we didn't. So I looked online. She has a child that looks like him. I started thinking, well, maybe that's why he didn't let me have access to the checking account or anything. He wouldn't let me have the passwords to our accounts. Maybe that's why. Maybe he was paying for her or something. I don't know. Wow. So, you know, I kept asking him, you need to get released, you need to get released, you need to get released. I was starting to take things and putting them in storage unit. I actually only had a part-time job. It really wasn't making enough. I would not qualify for a place on my own. So I was like, what am I going to do? I don't know where I'm going to go. But I started looking at like Airbnbs. I started trying to figure out what I was going to do. Our son was getting ready to go on a mission. I told, I told him, I said, while you're on your mission, we will probably be divorced. And he understood, like, he kind of understood at the time, I thought. So uh, then he actually got released from the bishopric. Like, they reorganized the ward. So I was like, okay, good. Because I didn't want to be embarrassed. Like, I don't like airing dirty laundry for everybody to see. I don't like being part of the drama. I, I basically wanted to just walk away and pretend that I didn't know any. I, I had to get a new dentist. I had to get a new hairstylist. I had to get a new, I had to get all new doctors because 
they knew us both and they were in our ward or a stake or, but, but what ended up happening is a lady, I was her personal trainer. Um, she was 86. She fell and she broke her shoulder. Her kids asked me to move in with her and take care of her. And actually I wasn't even ready to do that. They asked me to do it. And I was like, I still didn't want to, but I was sitting on the couch and he was on the computer and I have a video of him. He took a video. He was frustrated about something. He starts pounding on the keyboard. He starts slamming the keyboard down. He's yelling at me, get over here and help me. Get over here and help me. And I'm like, by then I was better at boundaries and better at communicating. There was a lot of communication skills I was lacking. But I said, well, when you ask me nicely and tell me what you need me to do, I might come over and help you. But he didn't do that. He just couldn't use it. So I'm videotaping it. I have it on video. I might have lost the video, but so then I sat there. It was nine o'clock. He was getting ready. He went upstairs to get ready to go to work. And I thought, I'm done. I'm gone. I packed the bag. I told the one son that was at the home, I'm leaving. I left a note on the kitchen table and I said, I'm gone. Do not contact me. And I left. You know, a lot has happened as far as my belief in Mormonism, but I will say God or some higher being was leading me. I mean, this was, we were married 35 years at that point. Something was helping me along the way. At, at this point, anyway, when I finally opened up to the universe, like, you know, I prayed my whole life, but they were dead prayers, like Mormon dead prayers, like bless the food, bless the man, bless the missionaries, you know? And I actually do did pray for my children growing up, like, please bless their problem or whatever. And I, But now I opened up myself to what I needed, to God. Help me, help me figure this out. Yeah. My, none of my kids are in the church anymore, but one of my daughters um, started talking about manifesting, you know, like manifesting what you want into the universe, what you want. And I was just like, well, that's interesting. You know, it's kind of like praying, but it's like saying that this is what I'm looking for. This is what I want. This is, you know, and just basically saying it often, you know, and that's all prayer really is. You know, you're saying a prayer, but the way that Mormonism makes prayer is that you're saying it's a rote prayer. It's really, dear Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for this, I'm grateful for this. And the, the thing is, is that you're saying that you're grateful for things first, and then you're asking for something, and then it's in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The thing about manifesting, though, is that, and I'm not going to say this right, I'm sure, because I don't know what I'm talking about with this, but my daughter has just basically made like a vision board kind of thing, where she puts up the things that she is looking for, what she wants. And so she's seeing it every single day. You know, so praying is kind of like that, right? Yeah, and I had really just gotten to the where I was on my knees bawling and crying and asking mm -hmm. for help. And I had also started li listening to Christian, like Andy Stanley, um, Joyce Meyer. Um, I started realizing that our uh, belief system of the uh, Godhead, the atonement, all of that was different than the rest of the Christian world. And so I left that marriage as a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, I left and I wanted, I still wanted to go to church because I didn't want to lose my kids and I wanted to be able to talk to them about Mormonism. One of my sons had left Mormonism and my other son had gone on his mission and come home early and never went back to church, but mm -hmm. I never talked to them about why. I was embarrassed and sad for them. Like I was like, yeah, that's their choice. That's their life. They're still good people. They're still doing good things. But mm -hmm. their, their dad was like, we failed. We failed because one of 
couple of our kids had left the church, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I was like, that's sad because they're great. They're great humans, you know. Yes. We we raise we raise good humans, you know. Mm -hmm. I was going with my daughter to her singles work because she had just gotten a divorce. I, I actually heard about the Protect LDS Children um, movement. I saw it on Facebook and I clicked on it and I was like, that's weird that I let my kids go into a bishop's office alone. And I was basically always there for them talking to them about abuse, protecting them from abuse. I didn't, we didn't get babysitters, one, because my husband was too cheap, but also because I just didn't feel comfortable having a babysitter come in the home. So the kids babysat each other. I was always talking to them. Has anybody touched you? Do you have anything you need to talk to me about? Protecting them. And I did a good job. I mean, even now, if I talk to them now, they're like, yeah, nothing ever happened. We were and, and I talked to him about that. Like, after I heard that, like, I thought, that is weird that I trusted this strange man who was their bishop and let my kids go alone in that room. And all these things happened to kids, happened to teenagers and young kids and people in the bishop's office. Mm -hmm. And it's all buried and kept secret. So then it was like a real mind trip to me that I was so trusting and buried my head in the sand and just trusted strange people. Anyway. Um, so that's, well, I was reading a post and that's when I heard about Joseph Smith and the, the stone in the hat. When my son got married in the temple, I didn't get to go into the temple because I, um, I felt I needed to be authentic and real and I didn't believe it in it anymore. Yeah. My ex and his mom, mm -hmm. his mom's an evil bitch. Um, his mom <laughs> was married six times and had multiple affairs who still went to the temple and I know for a fact, because I've talked to some of the men, she, matter of fact, my, my husband, the dad, she said he had, isn't even his dad. He had a twisted childhood. Mm -hmm. And I used to give him allowances for that. That was mm -hmm. the other thing. And he's a police officer. He's amazing. He's a police officer. You know, when you're a police officer, you know, you're a little twisted. But, but yeah, they got to go in the temple. But I had a very spiritual experience in the waiting room in the temple. What was your spiritual experience? But I, yeah, so, you know, it was just so spiritual to be in that room with my mother. For me to tell her how sorry I was that I left her out of my wedding. Um, there were people in that had driven from out of state, and they didn't understand that why you couldn't go in the temple and see their marriage. And we were able to talk to them, and everybody cried. People were crying because mm -hmm. of this abusive situation. But the reason why I didn't want to go in the temple was the bishop told me that I had to pay tithing. Like I had to catch up like $5,000 in tithing. And I'm like, I am going through a divorce. I don't, I don't have the money. Like I can't do that. It was all about money. But I started finding out more and more about the lies that I was told as a Mormon. What I was taught in seminary and college and institute and every Sunday at church and general conference is not the true history of what what really happened we have the internet now you can go and watch and you can look it up and you can find out what a fraud joseph smith was mm -hmm. and abusive abusive to women yeah discuss and i it, could not go into the temple mm -hmm. i did not want to right and that he was a pedophile so, he was and um so my ex was inside the temple even though all this has happened he was mm -hmm. in the temple with them and then he was he wouldn't talk to me he still to this day won't talk to me he wouldn't even be in any photos at the wedding reception or out at the wedding, you know, it's weird. The whole thing's weird. Whatever. I'm happy. I've left Mormonism. I don't have to live those stupid made-up rules. I am happy now. I have a boyfriend. 
He was not raised Mormon. He is so respectful. We have a mutual, he would never do anything that I, if I say no to something, you know, well, he doesn't even ask. He doesn't do any of those twisted things. He doesn't even ask. It, he has no interest. It, it, our relationship is, is about us. Like, it's us, yeah. not other people. That's and he, he loves me. I love him. And we're, we're just dating, but he's a good guy. And he's loving and caring and normal. And his family's normal and everybody's normal. So there's hope. Yeah. Yeah. You can be married for 35 years and start over and yeah. and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so much happier and um so my daughter left Mormonism. I mean, she got a divorce. She was still trying to be Mormon. She found out about Joseph Smith and um polyandry in his and and all these things, you know, she was like done. She like took her garments off. She was like I'm done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, my older two that left the church I talked to them and they said that's why too they found out the truth they found out it was all made up and a lie and all you know they just they were done too and, but my youngest who got, came home from his mission and got married in the temple it's still a work in progress yeah. it's not like we're trying to make him leave he you know he'll find out yeah. everybody's finding out right it's true Yeah, it's falling apart it's falling apart for them yeah well, thank you so much, Denise, for doing this with us. This was really great. I I think that your story is more common than you know. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are really going to relate to this. Yes. And it's a good example of we never know what's going on behind closed doors, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You can look perfect on the outside and, and have something really terrible happening behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And, and you're never stuck. Mm-hmm. I felt stuck. I felt like I was trapped and stuck and that I couldn't, I couldn't leave. And you're not. There's choices. We all have choices. We do not have to stay in any situation that's hurting our soul. Basically, my soul was sucked out of me. I know that now. I just let somebody else bring me down to the point where I'm not even myself anymore. Yeah. Well, I think you're amazing. This was a great story, really. I hope it helps somebody. I hope somebody gets help. Yeah, I think it, I know they will. Yeah, I think it absolutely will. Thank you so much. Definitely. Thank you guys for what you're doing. Keep up the work. Thank, thank you. you. We can't do it without you. Yeah, so very true. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on Latter-day Survivors. If you would like to support us, you can go to our website at latterdaysurvivors.org and donate. It helps us keep bringing this podcast to you. You can follow us on our website at latterdaysurvivors.org, on Facebook at Latter-day Survivors, on Instagram at Latter-day Survivors. On TikTok, we each have our own TikTok. Kendra's is Latter-day Survivors, and mine is Latter-day Survivors Dana. That's D-A-Y-N-A. You can follow our Twitter at LDSurvivors. And we also want to encourage you to follow Cody Francis and his music. He sings our song, which is called It'll Be All Right. You can find him on Spotify and all music streaming services. Go out and support him, too. We thank you guys for joining us, and we hope that you'll come back next time, that you'll share our podcast, and that you'll tell your friends. We are your hosts, Kendra Solani and Dana Brown. And as survivors of sexual assault, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. 
Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, families, and friends of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place, where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. Just knowing there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life can remind us that we are not alone in this. Suffer 
since I have the opportunity to tell my story, I'm going to freaking tell it. 